The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. Thanks and welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I am Jerry Prokopovich. Tonight, we'll be talking about one of the fundamental ironies of the Civil War, the idea that soldiers on both sides saw themselves as fighting to protect the ideal of freedom, but to do so, they had to give up much of their personal freedom and submit to military discipline. They didn't do so easily, as we'll discuss today with Professor Stephen J. Rammeld, author of Bearing the Iron Hand, Discipline in the Union Army. That's today on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu. Dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio, where I have once again stepped over the announcer's voice because I still haven't quite figured out what it is uh, 
uh, what it is I'm doing here, but uh, I'll get it one of these weeks yet. Anyway, we are here from the beautiful Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University, looking out uh, on a Wednesday evening in 2013, where it's uh, a beautiful evening, getting a little dark uh, here in the first day of October, uh, but uh, enjoying the view across campus uh, until a few moments ago listening to the sounds of the marching band practicing in the field across 10th Street and yet not speaking for ECU or certainly not the University of North Carolina system but reminding uh, people elsewhere in the North Carolina system that last Saturday ECU's football team played the Tar Heels from Chapel Hill and administered a serious beatdown, uh, winning 55 to 31. It was a, uh, a a glorious consummation of the season to this point uh, for the Pirates, especially because uh, 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 the relationship between the two schools is, is very much one of the the metropole and the colony the. The uh, uh, central uh, uh, flagship school in Chapel Hill, and then uh, the the Chippy Regional School here in Greenville. Having myself uh, spent time, uh, much time at the University of Michigan, I know the importance of the flagship school and the the uh, disdain with which people occasionally look down on the regional schools. Although. If it's institutional arrogance we're talking about, uh, Harvard will take a backseat to no one, and there's my weekly mention of Harvard University. Uh, did you know I had a degree from there? And uh, yet, f- to beat ECU, for ECU to beat uh, UNC for the first time in, I don't know, 150 years, I think 1975 was the last time the Pirates went to Chapel Hill and won, it was quite... Uh, uh, quite an invigorating moment, and, and for a minute we forgot about the straightened condition of the budget or the ridiculous uh, uh, things that the administration wants us to do and so on, and just enjoyed uh, the college lifestyle. I did not watch the game, either live uh, at the stadium or on TV. However, as I was doing something more congenial to... Uh, to our gathering tonight, which was attending the Lincoln Colloquium, annually held in the Midwest, this year at Knox College in Galesburg, Illinois, site of one of the Lincoln-Douglas debates. It was a uh, wonderful event, as it always is. There were some really uh, very interesting talks. The uh, discussion centered around William Herndon, Lincoln's uh, law partner, and the need to uh, perhaps re- redo a biography, write a new biography for Herndon, and consider the quality and value of the evidence he gathered. Uh, but it was much more than just that sort of detailed historiographical debate. Uh, and I was happy to uh, not only hear interesting speakers, uh, Richard Carradine and James Oakes, uh, among them, have agreed to be on the show in the near future. So we'll have them here shortly. Uh, and also got to meet a few of you listeners to Civil War Talk Radio who are attending. It was always uh, good to see old friends and meet some new ones. So uh, uh, it was a, a well-spent weekend uh, while back here in North Carolina. The Pirates were putting things to rights up in Chapel Hill. 
Uh, I mentioned Richard Carradine, uh, uh, author of Lincoln, A Life of Purpose and Power. He'll be on uh, probably in the spring when he's back from England here in the States, so the time difference isn't too great. Uh, We'll get him on in February, I hope. James Oakes, uh, looking for a December date. Coming up in the near future, uh, next week, we have uh, Eric Jacobson from uh, Franklin, Tennessee, to talk about the Battle of Franklin, which he has written about and is involved in preserving uh, as a battlefield site. Then we'll have Philip Lee, who's edited a new version of Company H, the great Confederate uh, memoir, on the 23rd of October, Alan Gelzo will join us to talk about uh, his new book on Gettysburg. And then, uh, still looking at October 30, but coming up in November, uh, David uh, Soselsky, uh Tom Vossler, who's written uh, a Gettysburg guidebook, Frank Barney, who has a, a new take on U.S. Grant's memoirs. Uh, they'll be joining us in November. We've got other guests coming up after that. So lots going on on the show. We hope you'll all be able to come back and join us. To keep track, go to www.impedimentsofwar.org, where Mark Gaffney keeps things up to date and tells us all who's going to be on the show, who's been on the show, shows you links to past episodes you can listen to at your leisure. And, of course, there's the PayPal donation button if you want to contribute some dollars to the Civil War Talk Radio Book Fund. Those are always welcome. But legally speaking, it's uh, it's a personal gift. It's not a tax-deductible donation. Uh, I am not a 501c3. I am not obligated to do good things with your money if you choose to give it to me. I could buy you know, chalk for my classroom, which is never there, it seems. Uh, we do still occasionally use the blackboards. Or I could buy... Uh, uh, Whiskey from the Sutlers to to bring us to tonight's topic, uh, (laughs) discipline in the Union Army. And with that, uh, let me welcome our guest this evening, Professor Stephen J. Rammold uh, is with us. Dr. Rammold, are you there? I am. Uh, Welcome to the show. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Uh, Am I pronouncing your last name correctly? You are. Uh, Thank you. Oh, that that was... one time somebody mispronounced my last name, and I've never quite gotten over it, so oh. I, I try to do my best. Oh, uh, I, I appreciate it. <laughs> well, um, but I hope we can go by first names. Do you, do you prefer Stephen or Steve? Uh, uh, either or Stephen's fine. Oh, okay. And and do call me Jerry. We'll so, uh, well, let, let's start with the background. Uh, you and I have not crossed paths that I can recall at, at conferences uh, uh to date, uh, we may have, I, I forget things more and more, uh, but uh, tell us where you're at now and, and how you got there. Um, I'm at uh, Eastern Michigan University right now, which is in Ypsilanti, Michigan, which is, uh, speaking of flagship institutions, just uh, about eight miles down the road from Ann Arbor. Um, we get the whiff when the wind blows the right way. Uh, before that, I, I've been here for nine years, um, up for promotion of full professor, so I'm Moving along here. Uh, uh, before that, I was at Virginia State University in Petersburg, Virginia, for four years. Uh, before that, I was uh, one year at Doan College, a small liberal arts school in Nebraska. And before that, I finished my Ph.D. at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, where I worked with Ken Winkle. Oh, excellent. I, I know Ken. He, listeners to the show will know him his work about the Young Eagle, the, uh, mm-hmm. uh, the early life uh, of Abraham Lincoln in Springfield. 
Uh, is Doan College the one that closed recently? Um, no, there, that was. Um, there's another small college in it Nebraska. Was Midland College, if I remember correctly, just uh, northwest of Omaha. No, Doan is Doan is alive and well. Don't still, that's good. Don't want to start any rumors here. We were interviewing someone a few years ago for a job who decided not to pursue his, his application and went back to his school. And it seemed to me it was a small college in Nebraska that shortly after uh, went went belly up. But uh, uh, And Virginia State, I have driven by Petersburg a few times. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I would say, I'm certainly familiar with Eastern Michigan. You, 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 you took a step up there, I would say, um, based on, on what I've seen, at least with the physical plant of uh, Virginia State. Not that I want you to trash your former employer. but Oh, no. I, I enjoyed my time at Virginia State. Uh, the main reason I left is my wife's family is originally from Michigan. So um, it was uh, more of a, a family opportunity than any sort of really uh, any sort of displeasure I had with Virginia State. It was a very, very good school, and, and I enjoyed the opportunity they gave me there. And um, But when another opportunity came along, I took it. Oh, well, I... I sounds like a good thing to do. Opportunities are not often found in what we do these days in, oh, in the academic world. Exactly. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, very good to have that. And, and Eastern is, uh, as you know, uh, uh, you know, a, a fine school and, and neighbors to Ann Arbor. I spent uh, seven years there in my mm-hmm. undergrad and law school days. And, uh, well, I, I knew people in Ypsilanti, but we could tell stories all night. We'll move on. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you, have you, when did you start uh, having an interest in the Civil War? Um, actually, it's another Michigan connection. I, uh, I started reading Bruce Catton's books when I was uh, a younger man, and uh, mm-hmm. that got my, piqued my interest. And being from Nebraska, of course, I was intently interested in the Civil War. Um, mm-hmm. All sorts of Civil War things happened in Nebraska, as you know. <laughs> Not really, but um, um, again, uh, historians are interested in the things that aren't around them. So I wasn't interested in, in cowboys and Indians or the Transcontinental Railroad or anything. It was things going on in Virginia, things going on in Mississippi is the things that catch a Nebraska boy's interest. So, uh, so uh, you, what about the the topic at hand, uh, bearing the Iron Hand? Uh, discipline in the Union Army was this? Did you originally write this as a dissertation, or is this? No, that, that was actually several, my second book. Second, um, my my first book was my doctoral dissertation, which was um, on African Americans in the Union Navy. Mm-hmm. But there was a chapter in that book on African American sailors in the naval criminal justice system, and as you see from the TV schedule, Law and Order is always a very uh, popular topic, and. I developed an interest in it, and so I uh, thought I would see what uh, what the Army side was. And, uh, well, it found a, a rich pool of, of material to mine. So there is certainly that there. There's a lot, uh, a lot here, a lot of approaches to take. Um, we're we're sort of approaching a break, so I just want to start a question, and, and I, I'll apologize in advance if I cut you off, and we resume on the other side. But okay. uh, one of your approaches is to look at the the legal framework of discipline in the Union Army. Mm-hmm. And that really opens the reader's eyes to, to things that you might not ordinarily think of, uh, such as the fact that soldiers 
have an entirely different, essentially a different legal system than than civilians do. Absolutely. Uh, how did that come about in the case of the the American Army? Uh, it actually predates the the Constitution. Um, the British Articles of War were adapted from European Articles of War, and then when the American Revolution broke out, the the Massachusetts colony was the first to move on them, uh, to basically copy the British Articles almost verbatim, um, almost in the same way that the Confederate Constitution was, to a large degree, a verbatim copy of the U.S. Constitution, with a few local adjustments to uh, certain characteristics. Um, So the system was already in place before the Constitution. And it actually gets encoded into the Constitution as the Constitution, of course, permits the creation of separate military and naval courts. Um, So this is actually a British tradition and, by extension, then a European tradition, which the Americans were simply following without really challenging or or thinking why. It was was good for the British Empire, so therefore it's good enough for us, too. So it it was not a a conscious invention. It was not a, a revolutionary break with anything that had gone before. No, no, not at all. The, uh, a, a British officer looking at the American system would find it very, very familiar. So what, uh, how do the Articles of War, well, what are the Articles of War, literally? Uh, is this a, a single law? Is, no, it's actually what does that a, term mean? It's, it's a, a separate legal code, um, which is very separate from the Army regulations. The two often are, are confused, but our regulations are just sort of the day-to-day operating rules that the Army operates by. But the Articles of War are a separate, defined, codified legal code, which defines what crimes are, what offenses are, what the appropriate punishment is, uh, which venue for, for uh, adjudicating those offenses are, whether it's a regimental court-martial or a general court-martial by higher officers, uh, it spells out the procedure by which a court-martial will be carried out. It prescribes which punishments are appropriate for whichever offense you're talking about or the, the soldier is being accused of. Um, it's very much a well-defined legal code, uh, almost as a, sort of the, the, the U.S. statute codes are today. Well, we'll take a break here, and we'll come back and look at how that code got applied uh, both before the war and then uh, uh, in the war. And we'll learn about this from our guest, uh, Stephen Rammold. He's the author of Bearing the Iron Hand, Discipline in the Union Army. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. in Internet Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at VoiceAmericaTRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN or follow along with us at VoiceAmericaTRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? 
These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's p-r-o-k-o-p-o-w-i-c-z-g at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Talking today with Stephen Ramold, we're talking about discipline in the Union Army, the subject of his book, Bearing the Iron Hand. In our first segment, we discussed briefly the Articles of War, the legal code that underlies, uh, underlay military justice in the Army uh, up to the Civil War, and indeed still does. Uh, but, uh, Stephen, the question I was wanting to ask was how this actually got enforced. You mentioned briefly uh, court-martials. Was, what was the system for, uh, for enforcing uh, violations of the, or punishing violations of the, the Articles of War? Um, actually, it's a two-tiered system. Um, the, there's the Provost Marshal Corps, which essentially is the, the military police, um, it had a few other duties during the war. The, the Provost Marshal Corps, for example, also ran the draft in the North during the war. It was their responsibility. But as far as a police force, um, they're sort of the equivalent of the military police today, although they weren't a specialized task. Uh, soldiers who had a record of good discipline uh, or a, a, an officer with a reputation for instilling discipline, uh, they would be temporarily assigned on Provost Guard duty to sort of police the rest of the Army. And the size of that depended upon which formation they're attached to, and obviously, uh, as opposed to a, a brigade, as opposed to an entire army like the Army of, of the Potomac or something. Um, once a soldier committed an offense and the provo marshal took them into custody or an officer preferred charges against an individual, the superior officer did, um, then it passed to the judge advocate general who would decide if a court-martial, the, the, the offense was serious enough for a formal court-martial or if it was a relatively minor offense, it would be remanded to sort of a, a regimental court-martial, just sort of a, if anyone's in the Navy, you're familiar with the term, to, to go before the mast, 
mm-hmm. to go before uh, the captain of the ship to be handed down, you know, localized discipline. That's what a regimental court-martial is. The, the regimental colonel will hand down the punishment. If it's something severe, however, say desertion, some sort of violent crime, some sort of property crime, uh, then it's a formal proceeding, a formal general courts-martial, which has its own different proceeding, which is very, very different than what you would see on Law and Order or any other uh, you know, crime show today. It's, it's, it's not a, a jury setting in a typical sense. Um, if you followed the, um, the, the WikiLeaks trial court-martial here lately, you, you may have gotten that sort of a hint of how different military justice is as opposed to the typical jury proceedings. Now, um, the, the people conducting a court-martial, if it's done at the regimental level, are the, do they have expertise in, in the Articles of War? Um, yes, they well, yeah, theoretically they did, and also theoretically the soldiers did as well. Um, under Army regulations, again, the separate rules for the day-to-day running, uh, under Army regulations, the soldiers were supposed to be read the Articles of War at least once a month. And officers, of course, would... And this would be, in, you know, you fall in an order, you have a, a, a monthly review or something, uh, and the officers would take the opportunity to read the Articles of War to you, and, and theoretically the officers would also be hearing it at the same time. In practical terms, however, in the middle of a battle campaign, um, sometimes that requirement sort of went out the window. But in a, in a general sense, the soldiers were aware of what the rules were and what they weren't, what they could get away with and what they couldn't. Um, it's, it, it, you know, ignorance is never an excuse, and it also applied to, to military justice as well. So there was a sense that people knew what, what the rules were. Well, one of the uh, themes that comes out in this book is the degree to which much of the, the enforcement of military law is improvised. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that starts even before the Civil War. You mentioned during the Mexican War, there was no way to deal with uh, crimes by American soldiers against Mexican civilians or vice mm-hmm. versa because those are outside the Articles of War. Yes. Uh, so they just had to make something up. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, how did that how, how, how did that play out? Um, in, in the next war and in earlier conflicts, it really didn't become a major problem because the size of the armies was manageable. Um, particularly in the case of the Mexican War, where you have more volunteers than you do regulars. In the Mexican War, at least, the regular army was able to sort of instill their ethos and their code of behavior on the volunteers so that the, the volunteer ethos did not overwhelm it. In the Civil War, however, when you have you know, the volunteers outnumbering the regular army by you know, 10 or 20, 20 to 30 to 1, uh, it's the civilian soldier ethos which takes over, where uh, I have not surrendered my personal authority, my own personal rights to the Army. I'm here as a citizen doing my patriotic duty, but I'm a citizen soldier. I'm only going to be a soldier temporarily. I expect to go back to civilian life relatively soon, and I'm not going to change myself and my world viewpoint at a fundamental level um, because I anticipate that change back to civilian life very quickly. So as this plays out, um, you have soldiers who have a sort of already a built-in mindset that they're going to resist the institutional discipline which is in place. And you also have a lot of new officers who are by themselves are also civilians and are only going to be officers temporarily, who also aren't really embracing this idea that the rules should be rigidly enforced. Um, and in fact, the viewpoint that a lot of the rules that they view are, are unfair and shouldn't be followed. So you have a, a quote of one uh, soldier saying, uh, I don't have it exactly, but that the soldier is expected to be treated like 
like citizens that you know will the good gentlemen who make up the first platoon kindly yeah. advance to the front yeah. uh, not ordered about like uh, mm-hmm. like, like redcoats yeah. uh, and obviously that that was going to lead to trouble yeah. oh absolutely um, I mean I'm reminded even going back to the American Revolution you know, Baron von Steuben complaining at Valley Forge that he has to explain to the soldiers why they're doing the orders that he's giving them and it's the same way in the American Revolution uh, officers can give orders, but because I'm a, a citizen who have rights, and in, in many cases with of locally elected officers, I know, knew my officer in the pre-war period. I know their personality. I know their family. I know their their foibles. Uh, you're no better than I am. So why should I accept your perceived superiority? I'll follow you if you're an effective leader, of course. But if you're not, well, that just adds fuel to the fire that 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 maybe I shouldn't be following you. Or, or at least follow you as far as my own sense of self-preservation goes. So what happens, what are the kinds of, of disciplinary problems that arise under that situation where soldiers decide they're just going to behave you know, as they will, uh, like civilians? Uh, what do they start doing? Um, the, the, the biggest example is, and I, I hope you enjoyed this chapter, chapter four, was the one on alcohol use. Mm-hmm. Um, in the pre-war period, again, alcoholism, or alcoholism, there's a Freudian slip, um, alcohol use was uh, sort of a manifestation of manhood, that you, you ability to hold your liquor was a sign of manhood, that you could freely use alcohol as you saw fit was a sign of manhood and independence. Um, and just because I'm in the Army, I'm still going to drink if I have the opportunity to. On top of that, the um, alcohol proved a very useful tool to many soldiers in the Army. It's a very portable form of, rep, of recreation. It allowed you to while away the time, you know, having a few drinks on your own while on leave, whether given or not, uh, was a sign, again, that you were sort of exerting some control over your life. And oddly enough, the Articles of War, and I can never understand why this wasn't the case, the Articles of War did not contain any language in it that it was a specific offense for a soldier to be drunk. Hmm. If they were drunk on duty, that's one thing. But if they were simply inebriated and off-duty and weren't causing any problems, that wasn't an issue. That by itself was not an offense. Um, a lot of officers made it an offense. There's there something called an Article 99 in the Articles of War where a, this is a, a breach of good uh, discipline, good order and discipline, excuse me. Basically, it's a catch-all offense. If you're doing something as an officer, I'm an officer, if you're doing something that I don't like, well, I'll find a way to punish you under an Article 99 because you're violating the good order of the regiment. Um, sort of like the, I suppose, a disturbing the peace uh, offense in, in the civilian sector. And there was plenty of that. Uh, you describe how soldiers would, would find ways to, to find alcohol yeah. and, and, yeah. and uh, trouble would result. Yeah, I mean, America was a very wet society in the mid-19th century. Uh, soldiers could obtain it readily if there was a saloon nearby. Uh, they could get it in the mail from their families. Uh, then you could forage it in the countryside, and if that didn't work, well, you, you could buy it from the sutler, as you as you mentioned. Um, and if not, you can just you know it's not that hard to make. So it was uh, something which the army tried to regulate, but it was so, sort of like prohibition uh, a half century later. It was they're, they're, you're fighting against the tide. If soldiers wanted wanted it, they were going to get it. Now, one interesting things that comes comes up here is you you mentioned the uh, the idea of manhood of, of soldiers identifying themselves especially 
those who had been uh, you know, living on their own, the the bachelor subculture, some historians mm-hmm. identify in the big cities of the north mm-hmm. uh, before the war, would clearly identify with that. But there's also the, the competing Victorian middle-class sensibility that is is emerging and growing stronger in the mid-19th century, mm-hmm. where the male ideal is to be the, the self-sacrificing breadwinner for the family, and to be a family-centered man mm-hmm. who rejects the bachelor subculture lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Certainly you had officers who came from that background as well, and that must have led to conflict. Uh-huh. Oh, and not only that, but officers who didn't come from that background um, in many respects were expected to maybe sort of migrate towards that. And I think you see sort of a very clear split there. Um, the officer is all about the institution, um, that your status and your rank by your peer group is also very important, a very Victorian attitude. Uh, they were expected to go the extra mile and, and, and accept no particular credit for it. Um, you know, it's, it's, they're, they're the responsibility bearers. What their men do falls on them. Um, so this is all a very Victorian institutionalized uh, system, and the officers are the representatives representatives of that. On the other hand, you have the soldiers who maintaining their own individualism is, again, this very, this Jacksonian frontier mentality where it's all about individualism. You know, my achievements are mine. I'm going to strive to improve myself. Um, So what what the officers want me to do to maintain the institution may not be in my best interest, but I'm going to work out for my best interest. And again, by expressing my own individuality, my own democracy, my own ability to to be my own version of America. So the the cultural subtexts of these battles are uh, over discipline, over alcohol, over desertion, and other mm-hmm. crimes involved. These 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 different uh, cultural uh, interplays. Another one you mentioned, of course, is nationalism. You have uh, immigrant subcultures that mm-hmm. uh, regard alcohol differently than oh, mainstream. Native Protestant Americans. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, as I mentioned in the book, there was a, a lot of popularity, um, maybe not on the battlefield towards, say, German regiments, but in camp, certainly. Um, as one officer or one soldier put it, that he was you know, very glad that the German soldiers would invite them over to come take, take some lager with them. Uh, the Germans always seemed to have a, a beer ration on hand that they were willing to share, and um, even though they weren't always popular, particularly after the Battle of Chancellorsville. Uh, at least in camp, the uh, the cultural identity was still there, and other soldiers were willing to take advantage of it. In addition to alcohol, and you also write about uh, sex uh, attempts to procure it uh, mm-hmm. in camp and elsewhere, uh, malingering, the, the, the sort of things individuals do uh, for their individual benefit. Uh, mm-hmm. What about more serious disciplinary breaches. What else did you find in your research? Um, was simply the, I guess one of the things that surprised me the most was simply the, the massive extent of property crimes. And here's going back, we sort of asked before about how this sort of fits into a broader scope of, of how the war was going to play out. And, and here's the debate between, again, between soft war and hard war. Um, you know, whether we're going to protect Southern rights, preserve the Union first, uh, treat them simply as wayward Americans still protected by American law, or are they the enemy with no restraints in any sort of traditional sense? And soldiers again were very keen to, to pick up on this. Um, earlier in the war, there are attempts to, to limit their ability to, uh, 
or their proclivity, I should say, to, to, to acquire souvenirs, to, to feed themselves by foraging in an unauthorized manner. Um, but by the time you get to the hard war phase or the uh, you know, generals like McClellan are set aside and the, the hard war generals come in, then it's basically almost, almost open season. Um, the, the amount of crimes was just simply you know, off, you know, unmeasurable. It, it seems like any sort of um, diary read, any sort of letter collections, almost constantly there's some reference to you know, stealing a pig, stealing a chicken, you know, looking for a house for valuables. Although, of course, in sort of the classic sense, no one ever really admits to doing it. They describe the activities of others but never list their own activities. It's only a very rare case I found where somebody actually admitted that they themselves were accused of theft or pillaging or swiping a chicken here and there. Um, sort of maybe the uh, evidence that there's still some moral qualms about this. What about, um, did you find evidence of uh, murder, of killing of civilians, of kill, uh, or, or of uh, assassinating officers? Um, these are things that are very difficult to judge, uh, particularly the, the attacks on officers, because um, it, it's the, the, the famous phrase, fragging in Vietnam. Um, you know, when a hand grenade is a pretty visible tool, but uh, a lot of the, the threats to kill officers tended to be, well, when the next battle begins, you know, and bullets start flying around. So um, how do you prove that? I mean, there was plenty of, uh, of examples I cite in the book of, of soldiers threatening it or there were suspicious cases of it. But it, it's one of these things where in the, you know, in, in the middle of a firefight, in the middle of a, of a battle, you know, which bullet, particularly when both sides are essentially using the same ammunition, you know, whose bullet killed who? Um, there are certainly threats to do it, but in terms to as far as the extent, um, that's I, I think impossible to measure. In terms of of other violent crimes, however, again, it's this is also very difficult to measure. Um, but but it was not as extensive, say, as property crimes by by, by no means. Um, of the sort of the categories of offenses, violent crimes is actually one of the is the smallest. Um, I mean, because you're looking at things like uh, soldiers killing civilians. But civilian uh, soldiers also being the victims of uh, murder by civilians, soldiers killing each other over again, over, you know, sort of the same typical sad things you see in, in murder cases today. You know, mm-hmm. alcohol is involved, some petty issue gets out of hand and somebody loses their temper and pulls a trigger. Um, it's, it's sort of the same mundane crime statistics you see on the evening news, unfortunately. I suppose you have, you know, two million men under arms, that's a, that's a large chunk of society, and you're going to have the same problems as anywhere else. Oh, We're going to take a short break now, and we'll come back again, talk more about discipline in the Union Army with our guest, Stephen Ramold. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. 
follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at Voice America and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu. Dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking with Stephen Rammold. We've been talking about his book, Bearing the Iron Hand, Disciplined in the Union Army, and discussing the many disciplinary issues that come up in wartime and the way the Union Army handled them. Uh, Stephen, I want to ask you a, a methodological question that came to me okay. as I was reading uh, uh, your book. And it was one, because it, it reminded me, you do, in, in some chapters, handle things in a way very much the way I have written about Union soldiers uh, mm-hmm. in finding, you know, reading as many letters, diaries, journals, uh, uh, memoirs, anything, as, as much material as you can find, mm-hmm. and collecting it, then making a point, uh, whether it be that there was widespread alcohol use or limited training or whatever uh, either one of us is arguing, and then supporting it with a, a series of, of citations of examples of this. Mm-hmm. What, I, what, what I was thinking about as I was reading this is whether this limits us from actually being able to say anything particularly definitive when we're done. And to, to put that in contrast, um, in, in Joseph Gladhar's book on Lee's army, he does extensive statistical research and says 
X percent of Lee's troops came from families that owned slaves. Uh, X percent of officers had this much wealth before the war. Uh, in your chapter on uh, courts martials, you do some of that where you, you say this percent of Union soldiers did mm-hmm. this or this percent did that. But in the other chapters, uh, you do, and I've done it in my own writing, will simply say there was a lot of alcohol use or there was a lot of insubordination, mm-hmm. there was a lot of anti-slavery sentiment. And here's some seven examples. What troubles me is when when we're done doing that, someone could say, well, here's seven examples of people who didn't do that. So you haven't really statistically shown us anything. Do you see where I'm getting with this? Sure, sure. No, I, no, I understand. Um, the issue is, of course, is with when you do statistical uh, quantitative research like that is it, it becomes very effective if you have an absolute sample. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you, know, you can say, yes, you can pick out all the officers in Lee's army because there's a, a finite number of them and do some investigation. Um, you can't do that with two million soldiers in the Union Army. <laughs> um, and in the end, um, again, yeah, I may throw five examples at you, and that's because I'm not going to rely on one because the criticism is, well, okay, you're, you're cherry-picking evidence perhaps. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm throwing five examples at you, but, uh, again, I picked those five examples very carefully because, say, one's from 1863, one's from 1865, one's from an Eastern Army, one's from a Western Army, one's from an officer, one's from a private. Um, you, you have to sort of, those are examples were picked to give as wide a sample as possible, or maybe not a sample, representation perhaps is, is the better word there. But, you know, you can never give definitive uh, issues for, again, a sample that big, um, particularly when you're talking about people's opinions, you know, you does what somebody write necessarily really mean what they what they're thinking, uh, particularly if in a letter to home if they're trying to influence someone's opinion? Um, yeah, it, when when I mentioned that people often didn't write about what other people stole, but they never write about what they're doing. Um, well, then you have to sort of take a leap of faith there that what you're offering then is not maybe not concrete proof, the sort of the same concrete proof that a statistic will give you in an absolute sample but that it is a leap of faith that it does represent enough of a trend. And, of course, there's always exceptions to a trend, but it's enough of a trend to where you can say, honestly and in good faith, that this is what I, I believe actually occurred. Um, and you hope that the reader agrees with you. It, it's, uh, I mean, it's an interesting challenge to, uh, to try to establish things like, like what people are, are thinking or what practices are that they don't want to write about and. Uh, uh, it, it just it it was a familiar style as I was reading it. I thought this is very much how I handled a lot of issues in, in mm-hmm. my own writing, and it didn't make me think if if there are limitations on it and, and how one might transcend them. But I'm not sure where where the sample is so large exactly what you can do. Let mm-hmm. me ask a, a different question about. Um, uh, punishment. What what happens to soldiers who, who violate the Articles of War? Um, you have a wide variety, depending on again the level of um, of, of, of trial at which they were tried. Uh, under the Articles of War, again, there, it's a codified offense system. There were certain punishments which a regimental court martial could not apply. They could, for example, they can't apply the the death penalty, for instance. Um, so, consequently, under those limitations, the regimental courts martials tended to uh, imposed punishments that didn't send soldiers away because, again, you need soldiers at the front. 
So prison sentences weren't real popular. Relatively few soldiers were actually sent to prison somewhere. Instead, the punishments tended to be short-term. They tended to be an attempt to modify behavior. Um, hard labor was often most common. Uh, actually, the most common punishment was a fine. Um, you take away that soldier's $13 a month, you're going to get their attention. But hard labor was also very common, uh, often hard labor with a ball and chain. Um, other punishments were meant to, again, uh, inflict humiliation, uh, forcing people to wear a barrel or, or stand on a barrel or, or do knapsack drill, you know, walk around with a, a knapsack filled with sand or rocks for eight or nine hours a day. Um, and other punishments were meant to inflict physical but not temporary pain, things like bucking and gagging, tying people up by their thumbs. Um, it's going to hurt like heck for a few hours, but once it's done, it's done. It doesn't leave any sort of permanent scar. Um, incidentally, before the war, uh, flogging was banned as a punishment. The, I always point out the famous scene from the movie Glory and how horribly inaccurate that is. Uh, and also tattooing and branding was also banned just before the war. So this sort of permanent marking of a soldier was was absolutely forbidden. Above that, at a general's court-martial, well, then that's where the serious offenses come in. If you're going to get a prison sentence, it's going to be from a general court's-martial, and only a general court's-martial could impose um, a death penalty. And the method of death depended upon the offense. If it was a soldierly offense, you would be shot dead honorably as a soldier. If you committed some dishonorable offense, um, say like rape, for example, then you would be hanged as a criminal. So, uh, the, and these punishments do get carried out. Uh, Abraham Lincoln, of course, was, was famous for pardoning a lot of yeah. soldiers. Uh, mm-hmm. And his generals didn't care for that. No, no, they didn't. Uh, the, um, you, you mentioned the, the scene in Glory you anticipated. I was going to ask you about flogging. Uh, and as you point out, that was, was, was prohibited. That, but the scene in the movie, I've always thought that was an example of filmmakers license because uh, the alternative to show an accurate example of, of, you know, bucking and gagging or riding the, the horse, uh, Mm -hmm. which requires hours of of torturous standing in place or sitting in place Mm -hmm. to carry out its effect would make a really boring movie if we had to watch. (laughs) So the, the, the flogging is an ironic comment on giving up your freedom to, to fight for freedom. But, but as you say, that didn't actually happen. Uh, that uh, was, no, was no. If, uh, if Colonel Shaw had done that, he with, had flogged a soldier, not only flogged a soldier with, without a court-martial first, um, actually he'd be finding himself on the end of a court-martial. So. Now, I'm, I'm going to violate one of the rules I learned in law school about uh, not asking witnesses uh, a question you don't already know the answer to. Okay. And ask you about... Uh, your current book uh, regarding Union soldiers and their relations with the home front. Okay. I I had our library order a copy, so bring up one more sale for you. Okay. Uh, and the co- the Appreciate copy that. just just came in. Uh, okay. And I haven't read it yet. Uh, so I uh, tell us uh, what it's called, what it's about, what what uh, what you found. Uh, it's yeah. titled "Across the Divide." Uh, Union soldiers view the northern home front. And it's essentially a discussion of how did soldiers at the front view various political and social debates going on at home, and how much could they impart to civilians and their families back home, um, what they thought about them, what the direction the country was going. Um, This book actually came out of a a Civil War roundtable presentation I gave called The 20th Letter. 
And what it referred to is, is that if you look at Civil War letters in a collection, you'll have all sorts of very positive letters from soldiers at the front back to their families. And then you'll get to the 20th letter, and there's a paragraph in there where the soldier's angry about something, he's chastising his family about something, why the heck aren't you doing this, why aren't you doing that? And the debate was, was how do you fit that into the narrative of Civil War civilian relations? You know, how do you talk about that 20th letter? So again, this doesn't change or challenge the assumption that, 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 that family members supported the soldiers and vice versa, but there is this subtext of debate of where soldiers and civilians disagreed on things, and how did that discussion play out? Just talking about what I've seen in my own research, uh, one place that certainly plays out is with the emancipation debate where the soldiers mm-hmm. uh, take the lead in, in convincing people back home to support it because it will Absolutely. help in the war. Did you find that in your research also? Yeah, there's. Uh, I've actually found, as, as I discussed in the book, there's. you can sort of put soldiers into three categories. There's um, uh, abolitionists who are not only in favor of freeing the slaves but conveying some sort of of rights and privileges after the war, anti-abolitionists, soldiers who are absolutely opposed to it, and in the middle, there's sort of a straddle group of, of emancipationists, those who see the wartime value of freeing the slaves, but maybe aren't really to take that step to actually give them things like the right to vote, the right to, you know, the, the full rights that would eventually come along in the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. Um, again, it, it, as soldiers, they see this as a political question, but they do see the military value of removing the slaves from, from their owners. Um, but from a philosophical sense, they're not abolitionists, but they're certainly not anti-abolitionists. So you have to find a place on the spectrum for them. Um, so, yeah, I, I found that a very interesting debate. One of the uh, soldier letters, just looking in the, the uh, bibliography here, uh, you cite the collection of George Squire of Fort Wayne, Indiana, mm-hmm. uh, whose letters uh, were at the Lincoln Museum, where yeah. I, I spent many yeah. years. Did you have a chance to visit the Lincoln Museum while it was still open? Did you see I those did. letters there? I did, ah. yes. Um, uh, the, the Squire letters were, were reprinted, um, but it's always good to go look at the, the originals to see what the... Um, original drafts perhaps left out, or you want to make sure that the, the quotes were taken in the proper context. So I had a, you know, a, a great privilege of spending a, a long day there. It was a, a great place in its time. Mm-hmm. Well, so uh, what the, the I, I don't want to put you on the spot and, and ask you to you know, summarize more than you've done uh, an entire book's worth of work, uh, but you said earlier, uh, you mentioned something that surprised you about uh, Union discipline. Did anything really surprise you in what you found about relations with the home front? Um, I guess the, maybe not necessarily surprised, but sort of um, filled out was, it was perhaps the last chapter is what I enjoyed the most, was the uh, soldiers' attempts to shape the, the outcome of the 1864 presidential election. Um, there's this general presumption that the soldier vote, or at least the Democrats were trying to elicit the soldier vote to support uh, George McClellan. Um, but I was very much surprised to see really just how off base that was. I mean, the, the, it had been a couple of years that the soldiers really no longer had that affiliation with McClellan anymore. Uh, of course, the Western soldiers never even served under McClellan. They had no loyalty to him. So, um, so the, the fidelity may not be there. But what really surprised me was actually the antagonism to McClellan that had developed. Um, you know, he was the, the, the worstest you know, traitor in our history, as one soldier rather ingrammatically put it. Um, 
So that I found that surprising was it's one thing not to support McClellan to throw your your loyalty behind Lincoln, but to view him and to discuss him in very aggressive terms, um, almost seemed like a very contemporary political campaign going on. It is it is somewhat surprising that, that they would uh, that they would turn. Certainly, you just say the Western soldiers had no 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 prior loyalty, but McClellan's personal standing. Uh, it's interesting to find a fell so far with some of the some of the eastern mm-hmm. soldiers as well well Stephen it has been a pleasure talking with you we are unfortunately out of time mm-hmm. but I, I know very, uh, very quick hour unfortunately it it goes by fast every, every week it, yes, uh, it does I've had guests who will say oh what am I going to talk about for an hour and I'd say don't worry <laughs> uh, it, it flies past well uh, it has been a fun discussing a uh, Briefly, just now, across the divide, Union soldiers view the northern home front. And uh, as we talked about most of the hour, Bearing the Iron Hand, Discipline in the Union Army, two very interesting books. Uh, It's been a pleasure talking with you about them. It's a pleasure, Ben, to be here. I appreciate the invitation, and I uh, hope to talk to you uh, in person sometime very soon. Uh, I, I do as well. And listeners, as always, thanks to you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.